75% of the infrastructure that will exist in 2050 hasn't been built yet. And as cities blossom, as they grow, the choices that they make about the way they plan, the way their systems are created, the way their services are designed, they're going to lock their communities into a development path that will impact us all for centuries. So they're really left with a choice to sprawl and continue to develop around car orientation or to develop into a compact, connected, more coordinated model um, to make for a more livable sound cities. Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis and international affairs. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I want to acknowledge um, the fact that uh, you may have noticed I'm flying solo. Um, My wonderful co-host, Mel, um, has decided to move on and pursue other opportunities. So uh, I want to acknowledge the hard work and dedication that she has has brought to this podcast. Uh, Mel was a part of the original team that brought this podcast from a concept to a reality. And although she's not going to be able to lend her perspectives and, uh, quite honestly, her sense of humor to these episodes, her, her contributions are going to continue to shape the future of Policy Talks. So Mel, if you're listening to this, we thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, and everything that you've given to this podcast, and we wish you all the best. Now, moving to the topic for today's episode, the clip you heard earlier was from Alyssa Fisher of the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C. And she was talking to us about the important role that cities play in taking action to address climate change. We'll get to that interview shortly, but first, let's take a quick trip back in time. Je regarde uh, la salle. Je vois que la réaction est positive. Je n'entends pas d'objection. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. Last month, the United States and China, the world's two largest economies and largest emitters, formally joined that agreement together. And today, the world has officially crossed the threshold for the Paris Agreement to take effect. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Americans don't need Washington to meet our Paris commitment, and Americans are not going to let Washington stand in the way of fulfilling it. That's the message that mayors, governors, and business leaders across the United States have been sending. So today, I want the world to know the U.S. will meet our Paris commitment. So when listening to those clips, I I think it accurately demonstrates the evolution that we've seen in the position of the United States with regards, at least at the federal level, with regards to climate change programming. So in less than two years, the U.S. has moved from a position of leadership on the Paris Agreement, this historic climate change agreement that was negotiated with 196 parties, to our present reality which is a position of possible withdrawal from the same agreement as announced by the Trump administration last month. So if we put this in the greater context of of climate change programming around the world, this is obviously a blow to progress on climate action. One, because the U.S. is one of the largest emitters of carbon dioxide. But two, also because the U.S. is one of the largest contributors of development assistance to vulnerable countries, 
So in the context of the Trump administration's announcement to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, it seems like this announcement has motivated state and municipal actors to, I guess, fill the, fill the void that's, that's being uh, developed, I guess, at the, at the federal level. Um, we've seen nearly 70 mayors of major cities across the country, including Los Angeles and New York City, pledging their commitment to the Paris Agreement and also pledging to continue the fight against climate change. And this actually, when you think about it, makes perfect sense, as most energy policy in the United States is implemented at a sub-national level. More globally, there is also C40, which is a, a network of the world's megacities committed to addressing climate change. Cities like San Francisco, Bangkok, London, Sydney, Caracas, they're all collaborating to drive meaningful, measurable, and sustainable action on climate change with the intent to build uh, the cities of the future, essentially sustainable cities. Uh, these forums drive home the idea that city-led action is crucial to meeting the commitments outlined in the Paris Agreement and uh, to meeting the, the needs of future generations. Now, to give us a little more insight into why cities are vital to the fight against climate change, we reached out to Alyssa Fisher, who is a strategy and management associate at the World Resources Institute's Ross Center for Sustainable Cities in Washington, D.C. In her role, Alyssa leads international policy efforts to help leverage global agreements like the Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, and the New Urban Agenda to create a more sustainable, prosperous urban future for everyone. Because one of the biggest challenges in tackling climate change is really helping decision makers understand why it's relevant to their interests and to the interests of the people that they represent, um, and then what solutions are available and accessible to them. And um, yeah, so our research over the past 15 some years has shown that sustainable development and climate-friendly urban systems are better for people, they're better for the environment, they're better for the economy, they create jobs, they create cost savings, and they have the power to really transform society by improving the quality of life for all city dwellers. Um, and the recent global agreements really reinforce this narrative. They acknowledge the importance of combating climate change, they reinforce the importance of inclusive, equitable development, and they underline the need to invest in a more sustainable future. And so when countries adopt these agreements and commit to making the changes that they contain, um, they're making a commitment to their citizens and to their cities to provide resources and policy changes that enable those changes to occur. Uh, cities and subnationals and, and stakeholders, civil society in general, can really hold their country policymakers to task. Uh, by reminding them of their commitments and to make the changes that they need. And this is more important now than ever because the resource demands put on cities is growing and will continue to grow rapidly in terms of space, in terms of energy, services, water, food, really everything. Um, we know that 2.5 billion more people will be living in cities by 2050. And this is a reality that decision makers can't ignore. You know, you mentioned the importance of cities holding countries accountable and the importance of, mm -hmm. of sustainable urban development. Um, and I think... If we just look at the example in the United States right now um, about Paris, the Paris Agreement, and the what has been proposed by the Trump administration at the federal level um, with regards to Paris, um, and the, I guess the the actions at the state and the municipal level to address that and say, well, okay, if at the federal level we're not, there's not going to be um, effective action on Paris, or there's going to be uh, a 
potentially a withdrawal from Paris, that these these city uh, these municipal and state governments are going to fill that vacuum. Um, uh, in your opinion, um, what should be the role of these kind of sub-state actors uh, in taking action against climate change? I think perhaps at the federal level, we because it has a broader appeal, perhaps people just assume that that these important decisions need to be made at the federal level. Um, but is that even accurate? Should these decisions really be be made at the the, the state and and the in the municipal level? Is that a more effective model to address something like climate change? Sure. Well, um, that's a complicated question, and it's not one or the other. Certainly, there is a role for federal governments to play. There's a role for global policy to play, um, and then there's of course a role for regional and local actors to play. Um, I personally. Um, I'm a big proponent of city action, and so is the WI Ross Center. Um, that's not to say that nations don't have a role to play, but especially in this climate of, um, you know, increased skepticism, I'll say, it's especially important for cities to, to really take the leadership role. I mean, cities are the centers of climate impacts, but they're also the centers for mitigation. Um, and cities are really, really important. They're vital because they comprise 55% um, of the world's population, um, and it's probably going to get to about 70% by 2050. Um, and this growth is going to happen mostly in developing countries. Um, so it presents cities with really an opportunity. 75% um, of the infrastructure that will exist in 2050 hasn't been built yet. And as cities blossom, as they grow, the choices that they make about the way they plan, the way their systems are created, the way their services are designed, they're going to lock their communities into a development path that will impact us all for centuries. So they're really left with a choice to sprawl and continue to develop around car orientation or to develop into a compact, connected, more coordinated model um, to make for a more livable, sound cities. Um, and so, you know, for that reason, cities and subnationals too, um, regional, provincial states, have a really important role to play in combating climate change. Um, as I was saying, you know, every decision locks cities into a path of development, and countries can sign accords, they can create goals, but at the subnational level, and, and cities especially, that's where the work happens, that's where the action happens. The cities and subnationals are responsible for building transportation, waste, water, energy systems that people use every day. Um, when cities invest in public transportation, when they invest in cycling and walking infrastructure, they enable people to get out of their cars. They enable, um, they, they reduce congestion. They reduce carbon emissions and other forms of pollution that are really harmful to the environment and to human health. Um, when we create renewable energy systems and efficient energy infrastructure that enables residents and businesses both to live, work, and, and operate without creating harmful uh, carbon emissions, ensuring that cities don't sprawl and push populations, especially, especially low-income populations, to the periphery means that everyone has better access to jobs and services in the city center and can reduce the need for single-user cars, mitigate congested streets, create more economic mobility, and improve quality of life for everyone. So cities really are the central players in this, in this game right now. Mm -hmm. They're the leaders. And could you expand a little bit more? Um, you've given some excellent examples of, of how um, uh, policymaking at the municipal level can really um, uh, to, uh, focus in and address um, some of the, the major contributors to, to, to carbon emissions or, or the mm -hmm. climate change more generally. Um, and in the broadest sense possible, what in your opinion are, are, are there natural advantages that, that policymakers have at the municipal level that 
that policymakers at that uh, at the state or the federal level just simply lack is it is it sure is it easier at the municipal level to address these issues um, um, for whatever reason do those advantages exist sure there are definitely advantages I wouldn't say that it's easier per se um, but cities definitely um, well more than federal government cities are connected to the people uh, people can connect more readily and have a greater voice in their local governments, and they can more directly advocate for the climate action they want to see, which means that it will get used more frequently. So when people advocate for, say, safer bike lanes or municipal composting services, you know that that's because citizens want to use those services and believe in that change. Um, locally tailored solutions are much more likely to actually target challenges right at the source of the problem, um, meaning that cities, the, their local solutions to global problems like climate change will have a better chance of success. Um, and similarly, local governments are in a much better position to implement policies um, that can impact behavior change uh, and consumption patterns. You know, you think about um, London's congestion charging scheme. Um, that has had a huge impact on the way people move around London, their transport habits, um, and has significantly decreased carbon emissions from transport. But you know, that, that kind of change really has to come from the ground up. Changing behavior, changing habits, changing attitudes, um, especially when it comes to climate, is one of the really primary ways to make change. Um, it's not just about implementing policies and, and, and spouting technical facts. You really have to change the way people connect with these issues. Um, and so those kinds of solutions really can't be implemented at the national level. Um, it's especially something like a congestion charging district in a city, that would be a logistical nightmare, um, <laughs> to be frank. And so that's why it's really important that countries empower cities to implement solutions that are right for them and for their unique context. Um, a big part of climate change impacts come from the choices that we make at a day-to-day -day level, at a local level. Um, and so the real climate revolution, if you want to call it that, will really rely on local solutions. As you heard there, much of the work that needs to be done in order to reduce emissions has to start at the local level. And this can include things like transit, changes to infrastructure, and changes in consumer habits, all of which really drive home this idea that action to reduce emissions has to start from the ground up. At the same time, though, it appears that the direction and framework for climate change action is largely set by federal governments around the world. Uh, and also, cities and states still rely on funding from federal governments to carry out certain initiatives. So this raises a couple of important questions. One, how can city-led action work with an, an international framework that largely involves nations as a whole? And two, how do cities balance addressing their individual needs versus coordinating with other cities around the world? And practically speaking, uh, there may not be a perfect answer or a perfect way to do this, uh, but looking at what's happening now with this patchwork approach, uh, this may be the, the most sensible way to tackle uh, a truly global problem like climate change. You know, climate action is going to be decentralized. There will be disagreements on solutions. That's, you know, we can't really avoid that. But I don't think it's as big of a problem as it sounds like. 
um, these global agreements are really, they're incredibly fraught anyway. Um, when you get China and the U.S. and Denmark and 200 other countries into a room and try to make them achieve consensus on something that's so central and so important, um, well, you can imagine there's a lot of back and forth. And it's not an easy process, which is why the Paris Agreement was such an incredible global victory. Um, yeah, the, de the decentralization of power to cities, I don't really think that's the bottleneck. Um, because when we talk about implementation, what works for Boston will not work for Delhi necessarily, and what works for Delhi will not necessarily work for Rio, and what works for Rio won't necessarily work for Stockholm. Um, as I was saying, there's, there's really no universal solution, and decentralization is going to be necessary and for progress. Um, the diversity of solutions and approaches is what lends this global urban movement its strength. Um, and it's staying power. You, you see um, right now, you see initiatives like the We're Still In Coalition and the Covenant of Mayors. I think the last time I checked, there were about 7,400 or something cities that had signed on to the Covenant of Mayors. Um, and this, the Covenant of Mayors, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a, is a, it's a group of cities that are pledging to um, assess their own carbon emissions and then create strategies and implement those strategies to take action to improve their climate impacts. Um, you know, we see that local leaders are committed to change and they're working together to achieve it um, despite their differences. And that momentum, I don't think, is slowing down anytime soon. So, I don't think it's a risk. Okay. Yeah. So then I guess a flip side of, of my earlier question about the role uh, at the national or federal level and how that can impact decisions at the municipal level. Going back to the example of the United States where we have a federal, at the, at, the, at the national level, we have a, a policy of of, um, or an intention perhaps to withdraw from Paris, and then we have different municipalities saying, well, re regardless of that, we're going to still abide by, by what's yeah. in the Paris Agreement. Um, is, there, is there a threat in the United States or, or, or whatever other examples you can think of? Can, can, can a government at the national level um, do much to thwart, I suppose, actions at, at subnational levels? Is that ever a threat? Um, well, I suppose that remains to be seen. Um, I personally am very optimistic that cities and, and local authorities are going to continue to pursue climate change goals, um, regardless of the administration's point of view. Cities have been on the front line of climate action and will continue to be. Um, cities, we see that cities understand that taking care of the climate is not just an environmental issue, but also has wide-ranging implications for the economy. Um, you know, we, we look at solutions like trans transit-oriented development, um, and we see that solutions like this can be a, a triple whammy for cities, if you will. Um, they solve not only environmental challenges, but also create more equal and accessible communities that improve residents' quality of life, and they support growth and prosperity of local businesses. They support the local economy. Um, so there's, there's plenty of good work being done, and I don't think that the federal government um, necessarily is putting a stop to it, but that's not to say that the federal government's actions aren't harmful. They definitely are. Um, reducing funds for climate research is not at all helpful, but again, I don't think that's going to stop cities from taking action. And, and luckily, despite the U.S.'s um, decisions, there are hundreds of other countries that do believe in this work, and their research will be able to support cities in the pursuit of innovative solutions um, regardless. You know, you look at the example of California's vehicle emission standards. These emission standards have been in place for decades, I believe, um, and they're considerably more stringent than our federal standards. Um, 
And because California is the largest car market in the country, and many other states have adopted those same standards, many automakers now make vehicles for the entire U.S. market that comply with California's standards. Um, and the administration did threaten to disallow California from setting these limits, um, even though they were established, you know, through the Clean Air Act 50 years ago. Um, but I just read an article this morning that was talking about how the administration, it seems like they realize that it's an uphill battle, that they're probably unlikely to win, and so they seem to be backing off. Um, and, you know, regardless of, of this administration, we see trends around the world that are moving in the right direction. Um, and they're going to do a lot to push back on backpedaling on climate change. Um, you know, France and Norway and India have all made commitments to cease sales of gasoline and diesel cars within the next 20 years or so. Um, the business community is also taking note. You know, you see companies like Volvo, which has committed to sell only electric and hybrid cars by, I think it was 27, or 2019. Um, and Tesla and Chevrolet are expected to roll out more accessible electric vehicles this year. And people are really excited about those. Um, I actually just published a blog today on uh, WRI Insights, our um, our institution's blog, talking about this very trend. You know, regardless of the current administration's pushback, these changes are happening. These changes are underway, and the trends are moving in the right direction. The administration can make threats, but I think that cities and the private sector are going to continue to persevere in leading progress because they know that that's the right thing to do, and that's the direction the world is going in. So if we dive a little deeper into what is happening at the municipal level uh, to take action against climate change, there are numerous examples of cities implementing significant changes to their infrastructure in order to become more sustainable. Uh, for example, the city of Bhopal, which is in India, uh, has introduced the country's first bike sharing system that is fully integrated with their transit system. Now in doing so, uh, the city is addressing issues of last mile connectivity, which is essentially where people need a way to get to and from a bus or train stop when the stops are a considerable distance away. And so small changes to transit infrastructure like that can encourage people to use greener ways of transportation. Um, in Istanbul, there has, they have been a leader in pedestrianization. Um, and pedestrianization is the concept of making streets accessible only to pedestrians, taking cars off the roads, um, possibly including bikes, depending on the system. Um, but there are trends toward making cities more livable and walkable through those kinds of projects. Um, and those kinds of projects can create not only climate benefits, but also make cities um, better for people and um, raise physical activity levels and create or generate economic activity. Um, so in Istanbul, their historic peninsula, which is um, a UNESCO World Heritage Site and I think sees something like 2.5 million visitors a day, um, it used to be incredibly polluted and congested with cars. Um, and UNESCO even found that this poor transport infrastructure and the intense air pollution was causing damage to a lot of the historical sites and monuments. Um, so in 20, or 2005, rather, the city started a pedestrianization project, and since then almost 300 streets on the peninsula have been completely pedestrianized. Excuse me. <laughs> um, and that's had a major implication for um, improving its air pollution, uh, carbon emissions, and overall quality of life in the district. When we talk about innovation in, in, in programming and policymaking, it's just there's so much opportunity out there um, to do really okay. cool things. It's just about having the will. And I think at the municipal level, this certainly speaks to your earlier point about the, the policies that are made at the municipal level. You can really fine-tune them to meet the specific needs of the people that, that 
the people within these urban centers that you have an acute knowledge of the context specific requirements um, exactly. and you're able to, to easily see and, and see the impacts and it's, it's got a very um, a tactile uh, element to it for sure. Um, exactly. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Um, okay. uh, Alyssa Fisher, we, we thank you sincerely um, for taking the time to share your insight with us uh, on, on what's pleasure. being done and good luck with uh, the work that you're doing at WRI and the, the Ross Center. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd honestly love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. I'd also like to thank the extended team that put this all together, including our researchers Eugene So, Chetta Ali, Kenneth Boddy, and Rianne Foley, our editor Megan Boishali, and our producer Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. <laughs>